Vishnupad, Paramhamsa, Parivraja Kacharja, Ashtasata, Shishimad, Asi Bhaktivaranta Swami Srila Prabhupada ki, Anantakota Vaishnavrinda ki, all glories to the assembled devotees, all glories to the assembled devotees, all glories to the assembled devotees, all glories, all glories to Shishi Guru and Gauranga, all Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Ajnana Timarandasha Jana Jana Shalakaya Chakshurumitam Jena Tasmai Shri Guruve Namaha I was born in the darkest ignorance and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Shri Chaitanya Manovistam Stapitam Jena Bhutales Vayam Rupa Kadamayam Tadatit Swapadantikam When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada, who was established within this material world, the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya, give me shelter under his lotus feet? Vancha Kalpa Tarubhyascha Kripasindubhyavacha Patitanam Pavanebhyo Vaishnavebhyo Namonamaha I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone, and they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhunityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaurabhaktavrinda I offer my respectful obeisances unto Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Nityananda, Shri Advaita, Gadadhar Pandit, Shri Vastakur, and all the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. I pray that Sri Sri Radha Kalachanji, Srila Prabhupada, and Srila Gurudev use me as an instrument so that their message can flow through me to give me the words to serve the Vaishnavas listening. Today is Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. Happy New Year. And we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Creation, Chapter 12, Birth of Emperor Parikshit, Text 27. Sakshakad Atmanomrityam Vijaputra Parasarajit Prapap Tasya Uprashudra Mukta Sangha Padam Hare Krishna Saksaka Ratmanomrityam Dvija Putra Putra Pasarajit Pat Prapatasyata Uprashrutya Mukta Sangha Padam Hare You want to try? Takashadagatmanomrityam Vajaputro Pasarajati Tat 
अपाचत्या उपाशत्या मुक्ता संघा पदम हरे तक्षाकत by the snake bird atmana of his personal self murtyam death dvija putra the son of a brahmana upasarjitat being sent by prapatshate having taken shelter of upashrutya after hearing mukta sanga freed from all attachment padam position hare of the lord translation and purport by his divine grace ac bhaktivedanta swami shrila prabhupad after hearing about his death which will be caused by the bite of a snake bird sent by a son of Bra- of a brahmana he will get himself freed from all material attachment and surrender unto the personality of godhead taking shelter of him purport material attachment and taking shelter of the lotus feet of the lord go ill together material attachment means ignorance of transcendental happiness under the shelter of the lord devotional service to the lord while existing in the material world is a way to practice one's transcendental relation with the lord when it is matured one gets completely free from all material attachment and became becomes competent to go back home back to godhead maraj parikshit being especially attached to the lord from the beginning of his body in the womb of his mother was continuously under the shelter of the lord and the so-called warning of his death within 7 days from the date of the curse from by the brahmana's son was a boon to him to enable him to prepare himself to go back home back to godhead since he was always protected by the lord he could have avoided the effect of such a curse by the grace of the lord but he did not take such undue advantage for nothing rather he made the best use of a bad bargain for 7 days continuously he heard shrimad bhagavatam from the right source and thus he got shelter at the lotus feet of the lord by that opportunity so we are reading from the shrimad bhagavatam every morning and hopefully at home as well and the whole shrimad bhagavatam is basically the recitation of the the essential portions of the vedas they were recited by sukadev goswami to maharaj parikshit after maharaj parikshit learned that he had 7 days to live so when he found this out he decided to give up everything go into the forest and just hear about the glories of god so this verse is signifying what happens you know what what this child that's about to be born is capable of so there are three main things that we'll discuss from the verse hearing about one's death being free from all material attachments and surrendering unto god so death is a very heavy topic you know it's something we don't like to think about um we put it we push it way way to the back of our minds and we think it's not going to happen to us right we think oh it's it will it'll happen to us but sometime far in the distant let's not think about it but what would you do if you knew exactly when and how you were to die the exact date of your death and that's a question that has pondered philosophers for 
generations. Because we all know we're going to die. Like, there's no doubt about that. You know, they say, what is the saying? The only things in life that are certain are death and taxes. Right? So, um, and the death rate across all populations is 100%. There's not a country, a city, a place in the world where the death rate is not 100%. Even in the universe. You know, even Brahma, who lives for a hundred of his years, which is like, I don't know, I'm not, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's like a million gazillion years here on earth. I mean, it's a really long time. Um, for us, because of the way we pass time, it seems like almost an eternity that Brahma lives. But for him, it's only a hundred years. And so even he doesn't have, you know, eternality here in the, in the material world. So even he has to succumb to death. So there's this psychological theory that this knowledge of death sits in the back of our mind and it informs every single thing that we do. It's the underlying cause of everything, of all of our behaviors, our thoughts, our desires. It's all there. Sometimes we think, well, you know, if I have to die, I might as well enjoy the time that I have here. So let me make lots of money, live very opulently, um, not want for anything, you know, take full advantage of this lifetime, right? You hear the saying, you only live once. But at the same time, we don't think about death itself. It's way off in the distance, and we're not really worried about it on our day-to-day, on a, on a conscious level. I think on a subconscious and subtle level, we definitely think about death all the time. So this question comes up again. What if we do know exactly when and how we'll die? I mean, this past year, during the pandemic, you know, threat of COVID, past couple of years, I should say, um, there's the, the fear of death is a li- little more visceral. We see it. We've, we've known people around us, family members, friends that have died, whether it's through COVID directly or indirectly. Um, so... Death has become a little bit more prominent in our lives these last few years. And not just here in the U.S., all over the world. So again, it's affected the whole population all around the world. So this question about what if we knew exactly when and how, um, there have been researchers, clinical researchers, psychological researchers that have looked into this, looking into behaviors of populations when, you know, during times of pandemic. Um, in the past, or other, you know, times of war where death is a little bit more certain. It's uncertain, but it's a little bit more certain. Um, as well as reviewing experiments and things like that, what they found was that a lot of people, when they're reminded that we're going to die, they cling harder to their foundational cultural beliefs and try to boost their own sense of self-worth. So they know that they're going to die. They cling harder to the beliefs they've grown up with through, you know, through the cultures they've grown up with, with the people that they've grown up with, and then they try to make themselves feel more important, have their better sense of self-worth. They become defensive about their beliefs and react with hostility to anything that threatens their belief. So, again, this is something that we see even now, 
during the times of the pandemic, people cling harder to their beliefs of science or religion. People cling harder to their their political um, allies, their um, cultural beliefs. You know, all of these things we see it even more prominent, and it's more divisive. So death has this way of, in a way, dividing people. Um, because people feel even stronger in their beliefs and argue and don't want to be turned away from those beliefs. And then another thing that happens during when people think they're about to die is that they also increase behaviors of self-harm. Again, it's kind of like this, you only live once. I don't have to worry about being healthy. So they engage in what's you know, considered like hedonistic activities excessive drinking, excessive eating, um, smoking, other, you know, shopping, other forms of self-gratification. Uh, there was a movie, I don't remember the name of it, came out a while ago. It's one of these holiday movies that's like a romantic comedy. And in it, the main character gets a um, diagnosis of cancer and that she's put, only going to live for like a month. So in that time, she quits the job that she has, that she hated. You know, her boss was treating her awfully, so she went and told him off. And then she empties out her bank account, um, maxes out her credit cards, and then just does everything that she's always wanted to do because she thinks she only has a month to live. So she spends lavishly at this hotel in Europe, and, you know, it's this whole scenario where actually what ended up happening was that the files got mixed up and it wasn't her chart. So she wasn't the one that was going to die. It was someone else. But having this being told that she only had a few months to live made her think, well, what do I have to save money for? What do I have to be in a job that I hate? You know, why, why not spend it now? Why not quit that job? Why not live lavishly? And so the key here is that Maharaj Parikshit, when he was told that he had seven days to live, he didn't act like that. He didn't go into excessive drinking, eating. He renounced all of that and said, you know, what's important, the most important thing is spiritual knowledge and my connection to God, to Krishna. So I want to hear more about that during my last few days here on earth, you know, days of living. So... Not all people act in this self-harming, hedonistic, um, hateful, divisive way when they're told about death. But actually, the form of death is framed in such a way that it makes them think about how their death will affect those that are le- they're leaving behind. Then they start to think about doing things that actually make an impact in the material sense of the world. They may become more altruistic. They're more likely to donate blood, to give to charity, to um, act in such a way that helps society, not just themselves. And then they're also more open to reflecting on the roles of both positive and negative events in shaping their lives. So they become reflective. This is what's called death reflection. And when we talk about death, we can either have death reflection or we can have death anxiety. 
is a quote by Mark Twain that says, The fear of death follows from the fear of life. A person who lives fully is prepared to die at any time. So when um, we're living fully to our fullest potential, you know, living with meaning, um, realizing that life has meaning, that we have purpose here on life, then when we hear about our death, we're not so shooken up by it. We're not swayed by the fact that we're going to die. When asked about what surprises the Dalai Lama the most about humanity, he answered extensively, but his final quote was that what sur- surprises me most is humans, they live as if they're never going to die, and they die having never really lived. So this is another point in which, you know, we when we look at reflections, we think about what is our legacy, what are we leaving behind, and part of that is, you know, living fully, fullest to our extent. Now, those of us on the path of bhakti, Krishna consciousness, we... Um, strive to become Krishna conscious in our own lives and impact the lives of others by leading by example, by sharing this knowledge of Krishna consciousness with everyone around us. And that is the legacy that we strive to leave. Whether it's, you know, like I'm a physician, a doctor, so I incorporate health and spirituality, but that is the legacy that I'm leaving. So we each have our own skills in talents in which we can um, engage in Krishna consciousness and engage others in Krishna consciousness to our extent, to our capabilities. And that is our legacy. So when we start to live according to that, then death isn't so fearful. You know, It's still fearful because we still think we have more to do or we want to do more. Um, but it's not as fearful and we'll get into that a little bit more. The other thing I want to say is that when terminal patients, you know, like cancer patients, are told that they are going to die, you know, there's no more treatments. Thank you. There's no more treatments that are effective. You know, you have so so many months to live. They either fight it with everything that they have, right? They're like, no, we have to find more. We have to look at other options. We have, you know, give me the latest, even the research experimental drugs. I don't care. I'm going to die anyway. Or they accept it and try to make the most out of the situation. They try to make every moment of their lives count, which is pretty much what Maharaj Parikshit has done here. You know, he's found out about his terminal diagnosis, and he's decided to make every moment that he has left Count, and for him, what counts the most is to hear about Krishna, about God, and to deepen his connection. And for those that are on the path of bhakti, we know that that is the best way to make use of our time in here on earth. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, "One who has taken their birth is sure to die, and after death, one is sure to take birth again." So. We know that birth and death are just a cycle of life. It happens, and Krishna goes on to say, therefore, don't lament. Do not lament. He also says in Bhagavad Gita 2.20, for the soul, there is neither birth nor death at any time. The soul has not come into being, does not come into being, and will not come into being. 
The soul is unborn, eternal, ever-existing, and primeval. The soul is not slain when the body is slain. So the soul is eternal. The body is temporary. When we talk about death, we're talking about the death of the body. The soul never dies. The soul moves on, and it can move on into another body, or hopefully, if we're studying the Vedic scriptures and realizing our connection to Krishna, we move on into the spiritual world to be with Krishna. We can also understand that death and Krishna and God are the same. They're non-different. In Bhagavad Gita 9.19, Krishna says, I am immortality and I am also death personified. So Krishna says, I'm both. I'm eternal, eternality, and I'm death. You know, the temporary nature of death. He says in Bhagavad Gita 10.29, Among the dispensers of law, I am Yama, the Lord of death. So again, he's saying that, you know, death is a form of God, a form of, you know, that higher being. In Bhagavad Gita 10.34, he says, I am all-devouring death. So, you know, he emphasizes that there is no difference between living, dying, because it's all a part of him. Both spirit and matter are part of Krishna, that he creates and generates both spiritual world and material world. So this brings us to freedom from material attachment. Why is this important when we're discussing death? Why do you think discussing um, having you know detachment from material sense gratification is important? Any thoughts? It brings you closer to Krishna. Anything else? Hmm? Uh, it might also bring the death, the process of death, less painful. The process less painful, exactly. So. It's actually our attachments to the material world that drives our fear of death. So if we can learn to become detached, then we no longer fear death. And as I've just gotten done explaining, God and death are very interrelated, right? Krishna says, I am death personified. So we don't want to, we don't want to lose anything that we've gained or not attain what we don't have. And so we fear death. And that's part of the material attachments. We're either hankering or lamenting. Bhagavad Gita 12.17, it says, One who neither rejoices nor grieves, who neither laments nor desires, who renounces both auspicious and inauspicious things, such a devotee is very dear to me. And in the purport of Srimad Bhagavatam 3.2.15, Srila Prabhupada says, A liberated soul has no hankering and therefore has no lamentation. One who wants to possess also laments when they lose their possession. So this is part of the problem, right? We we hanker and we lament. We hanker after that which we don't have, and we lament after that which is lost. And this is part of our material sense gratification. So we're so attached to our things, the people in our lives, the places in our lives, the way things are in our lives. And we see that also. We saw that 
very well um, demonstrated in the pandemic as well. We had people that were fearful of dying, and so they were ready to stay locked up in the house because they had this extreme fear of death. And people were fearful of change, of, you know, well, death is far away, but I know what I have here now, and I don't want that to change. And so they were very much against all of these lockdowns and other things like that because it signifies a change. It's a change in their lives. And it, you know, it came with economic hardships. It came with um, relational relationship hardships, right? We were separated from each other, distanced from each other. So these are all different ways that our attachments to the mature world manifest. In Bhagavad Gita 8.15, Krishna says, After attaining me, the great souls who are yogis in devotion never return to this temporary world, which is full of miseries, they, because they have attained the highest perfection. So on one hand, we can see how our material attachments keep us here because we want to have the finer things in life. We want to have great friendships and relationships and family um, we want to have a great legacy, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And yet, the material world is full of miseries and is temporary. You know, we can see that misery is all around us. It's filled with what's called three kinds of miserable, miserable conditions. Adiathmic, which is miseries inflicted by the mind and body itself. Adibotic, which is inflicted by other living entities and adhidaivik, which is inflicted by natural disturbances. So we've had, um, last year, we had the, the big snowstorm, and it was cold. So that was definitely misery inflicted by natural disturbances. Um, adhibotic, those inflicted by other living entities. We have war. We have people fighting each other. We have mosquitoes. We have viruses that are killing people, we have bacterial infections, right? We have these things that are um, miseries that are inflicted by other living entities. And then we have miseries by our own body and mind, right? We have heart attacks, and we have diabetes, and we have strokes and other physical ailments. But we also have miseries that are created by our own mind. And, you know, I've read, there's a quote, it's not the situation that's causing you pain. It's your perception or your reaction to the situation that's causing that suffering and misery. So if we can control that, our mind, um, then it doesn't matter what's happening with, you know, with the body, with the other living entities, with the natural world, because internally we found that peace and joy. And that's what the Bhagavad Gita teaches us to do. Another misery of the material world is that it's temporary. You know, whether we have happiness or distress, this too shall pass. You know, this time of lockdown and the pandemic has been going on for a couple of years, but it's still temporary. You know, I've been alive for 40-something years, and two, three years is just a small portion of my life, right? Um, if you're younger, it seems like a lot more, because it's, proportionally it's a lot more, but as time passes on, it'll be just a memory. 
I mean, just thinking about the early days of the lockdown, March 2020, we're almost two years from that date. Life is very different from then. You know, we were completely locked down. Now we found some balance. You know, yes, we're wearing masks everywhere. Yes, we're trying to stay physically distanced. But we've also learned, you know, what we're willing to um, risk and not risk. You know, we've come a little bit further away. So if we thought in March of 2020 that, oh, my God, my entire life is going to be like this, that would have been very difficult and miserable. But also knowing that this too shall pass helped make it go by quicker, right? Like helped it pass. Like we knew that this was just temporary. Well, that's the same thing with happiness. So we want that the misery of, you know, bad times to be temporary, but the distress of happiness is also temporary. And because it's temporary, it's distressful. There are times when I'm having a great time and I think, wow, in, an, in 24 hours, this will be done. It's over. It's just going to be a memory. And so you start to already feel that separation or that longing or that, you know, missing out on the time, even while you're experiencing it in the moment, because you know it's also temporary. So that takes away from our pleasure of the moment that we're experiencing. And then we're subject to birth, disease, old age, and death. And that's another sign of the temporary nature of the material world. We're controlled by the three modes of material nature, goodness, passion, and ignorance. We're beholden to the necessities of the body, sleeping, eating, mating, defending. I was a little late in getting here because I needed to get, you know, I had a hard time waking up, so I needed to sleep. And, you know, that's, in some ways I'm kind of in control, like I'm not in control of that so much, especially in the mornings. It's hard to pull out of that wake sleep and realize, oh, I have to be somewhere. And then the only way I can do it is to jar myself out of that sleepy, wakey moment in, in the mornings where you're not quite awake and not quite asleep and you're just sort of waking up. And, you know, so sometimes it's, it's, I can do that and jar myself awake and sometimes I just fall right back asleep. But in either case, it's the body itself that's controlling that. It's not, you know, it's not the mind because if the mind was controlling it, I would be up and out, you know, doing everything on time. So, and then eating, you know, we can't go without nourishing our bodies. Um, you know, yesterday, I, well, I um, traveled this past weekend for a cousin's wedding and I got back yesterday and I had very little sleep because I had to catch an early morning flight and I was trying to get some work done and I was like hungry, but I was also very sleepy. And so it was like these two things were at odds with me trying to do with what I was doing in that moment, you know, like unpacking, going grocery shopping, you know, it was like, I'm hungry, I have no food, but I, you know, too hungry to go grocery shopping or too sleepy to go grocery shopping. So it's like the body's always, you know, controlling these things. And then mating and defending, you know, um, I've heard it said the Jamar says, of the four necessities, defending is the one that takes the most amount of our energy because we're constantly in battle with our own mind, with other people. You know, you might say something, well, you know, it's important to get up early. And I'd be like, what do you mean by that? Why are you, why are you talking about me like that? 
Right? We defend ourselves immediately without thinking about what is this person saying? How can I benefit from that? Um, and Srila Prabhupada says, this material world is no place for a sane gentleman or gentlewoman. And our goal is to be a servant of Krishna. And to do so, we have to give up the material world. And we just talked about how the material world itself is filled with miseries. So these attachments that we have are very strong because they, the promise of getting something or having something um, keeps us with, within these miseries. We'll endure any of these miserable conditions just to have that moment of pleasure. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita 262 and 263, while con- contemplating the objects of the senses, a person develops attachment for them. And from such attachment, lust develops. And from lust, anger arises. From anger, complete delusion arises. And from delusion, bewilderment of memory. When memory is bewildered, intelligence is lost. And when intelligence is lost, one falls down again into the material pool. So this is what's happening. We have these material desires. We create attachments. We have lust, which is an intense form of desire, like really wanting something. That leads us to delusions, right? We we think, okay, well, yeah, this material world is miserable, but, man, if I can just get that one thing, all of it will be worth it. It'll be great. And then that bewilders our memory. We tend to forget that that we had this pain. You know, they say um, for women that have had babies, as the baby grows up a couple years, they forget that pain of childbirth that they had to endure. And they're like, oh, look at this cute child. Maybe I want another one, right? So they forget that they had so much pain, and especially maybe the first year of losing sleep and, you know, constantly having to tend to another human being. They forget that kind of misery they had because of the joy of raising a child, of having a baby. Um, and so we could see that intelligence is lost because knowing all these miseries and then knowing the temporary nature of material world, we're still so attached. We still act in such a way that keeps us away from Krishna. And so it's a vicious cycle, you know, our material desires lead us to lose our intelligence, and when we lack intelligence, we're further controlled by material desires, and we have to break the cycle. You know, Arjuna asks Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, like, what causes people to not break this cycle? And Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita 3.37, it is lust only, which is born of contact with the material mode of passion and later transformed into wrath, which is the all-devouring sinful enemy of this world. So it's what keeps us here, is this lust for, you know, things, for feelings, for experiences that bring us pleasure. Like, that's what we hanker after. And he says in Bhagavad Gita 2.44, In the minds of those who are too attached to sense enjoyment and material opulence and who are bewildered by such things, the resolute determination for devotional service to the Supreme Lord does not take place. And Srila Prabhupada says this in the purport today. He says, material attachment and taking shelter of the lotus feet of the Lord go ill together. 
And then we also know that we can't just go from not having any material desires to nothing. You know, we can't have no desires. Because that's hard to sustain. How long can we go with not having any desires? A day? Two days? A year? You know, if you're really an austere type person, maybe 10 years, 20 years. But it's still temporary. And it's still impossible to sustain. So by nature, we are filled with bliss, right? We are eternal souls full of bliss and knowledge. And so we're constantly seeking bliss. You know, that's part of that desire for material pleasure is because that is part of our constitutional nature. It's who we are. So what we want to do is find permanent bliss, permanent pleasure. And that's only found in our relationship with Krishna. So what we can do is switch our material desires to spiritual desires. And we do that by deepening our relationship with Krishna. This is what Maharaj Parikshit is doing and how we benefit by getting the Srimad Bhagavatam by his action of saying, you know, I have seven days left. I'm going to go into the forest and hear about the glories of Krishna and his different incarnations and his birth and death. You know, so we have the Srimad Bhagavatam for us to take advantage of. We are in a new year. We can always make intentions. Like I've always said, I don't really think we need to make resolutions because those fall, I mean, by most of us, it's January 4th. So if we've made January 1st resolutions, they've already been pushed aside. You know, we've already failed at them miserably because January 1st was on a Saturday and we must start things on a Monday and... You know, two days later, it's like, well, I wasn't ready. And so, you know, things go by the wayside. So we want to set goals. We want to set intentions. So an intention that we can have for this year is to read and study the Srimad Bhagavatam so that we can surrender unto Krishna, right? And Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita 4.11, as all surrender unto me, I reward them accordingly. He also says in 1866, Abandon all varieties of religion and just surrender unto me. I shall deliver you from all sinful reactions. Do not fear. You know, Krishna is um, calming us down. You know, he's, he's giving us his promise that he is going to take care of us. He'll reward us if we surrender unto him. He will, you know, there's nothing to fear by surrendering to him. So we just have to Say, you know what? My life is in your hand, Krishna. Tell me what to do. And then he says in 1865, always think of me. Become my devotee. Worship me. Offer your homage unto me. Thus you will come to me without fail. I promise you this because you are my very dear friend. Krishna, again, he's just, he's promising us this. You know, he's assuaging us. He's assuaging our fears and our um, doubts, and he's saying, just think of me, and you will come to me. So he's giving us, you know, why we want to do it, because it's going to free us from the material miseries, and he's giving us the how of why, how to do it. You know, just think of him, pay homage to him. Everything that we do is a service to Krishna. So we don't have to change our lives, you know, cr- tremendously. We don't have to quit our jobs and leave our families and you know, come join the temple full-time. What we want to do is engage in Krishna consciousness full-time. That means we can do that while we are at our jobs. 
even as mundane as it is, you know, we can learn to see Krishna in everything. We read Bhagavad Gita chapter 7, and I think chapter 9 and parts of chapter 10, Krishna says, you know, I am this and I am that, right? I am the taste of water. Um, we read, you know, I'm death personified. So we can learn to see Krishna in everything. You know, at the very least, you take a sip of water and you think of Krishna throughout the day. If you, you know, we have to eat throughout the day. So if we've offered our food to Krishna as a as homage, right, as, you know, here's a plate of food for you. I know you're hungry as well. And then we eat that food, plate of food as a form of mercy. That's prasadam. So we can also think of, you know, Krishna when we're eating prasadam. So there's so many different ways we can think of Krishna. You know, we can sit down and meditate on Krishna by chanting japa, mantra meditation of Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Right? We can make a, a decision that we're going to chant that a few times a day, you know, a certain amount of times a day, a certain amount of um, number of times a day, and then a certain time of the day. Right, so most of us have made a vow that we're going to chant that 16 rounds of it, right? We go one time around the beads, which is 108 beads, and then we do that 16 times, and it can take anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours, sometimes three, depending on how slow or how fast you chant. So that's one way we can think of him directly and then indirectly throughout our day. We can read to learn about him, right? That's why the Srimad Bhagavatam is so important it's an essential part of our Krishna consciousness because it describes all the different pastimes of all the different incarnations of Krishna when he came down to earth. You know, he came down as Krishna, he came down as Lord Rama, he came down as Narsingadev, you know, Vamanadev, Varahadev. You know, there's so many different incarnations as which Krishna came down to earth, and we can learn about all of them. So that all of these thoughts were filling our heads instead of um, thoughts of, you know, that episode of Friends, which was really funny, or that movie that I just watched, or, you know, like these are the thoughts that fill our heads um, is based on what we're feeding our mind, you know. So it's important what we feed our body. It's as important or more important what we feed our mind. Um, So we want to make sure that we're feeding our mind with Krishna. So that's all I have. What questions do you have for me? Today we heard a description of the life of Jiva Goswami. And he was living in a, what was called a crocodile hole. Know too much about crocodile holes, but apparently it was just a hole in the ground. And he was living off of Yamuna water and mixed with chapati flour and mud. So when we think about the reality of that, we wonder what, what how could somebody make that, those kind of life choices? Like, why, how would he? Why would we read books by somebody who's, who's apparently become homeless? 
uh, has no, doesn't have a house, doesn't have a success in life, you know, where, where there's no, no money in the bank, no, no television, no cell phones. What, what is the benefit of, of that, that kind of life? Why is it any different than just being uh, poor and destitute? So the difference there is the mindset. What's the mindset of Srila Jiva Goswami versus someone who's poor and destitute that might be having living in that same condition um, involuntarily other than voluntarily? Srila Jiva Goswami chose. He voluntarily chose to live in those conditions because all he wanted, he didn't want any distractions from thinking about Krishna, from deepening his relationship to Krishna. He didn't want to be, um, what's the word, distracted by material attachments. So in a crocodile hole, like there is no distractions, really. It's, it's your mind and Krishna. So that's what he was really focusing on. Now for someone else in that hole that's put there involuntarily, they didn't choose to be there, um, maybe indirectly, right, karma, we choose our current position in lives by karma, but and you know he didn't choose there to be there consciously. Um, the mind fights that man. This is horrible. This is a horrible condition. You know why did I do to deserve this? Why is someone over there not having to live in a crocodile hole? You know why do they get these opulent meals and they live in? You know why am I having to endure such things? So the difference is really the mindset. And what we're learning here is that mindset, we can see that shift between someone who's a billionaire and you know everything that they're doing, they're doing for Krishna, they're donating to um, spreading the mission of Krishna. You know, they, they use their house for um, programs to teach other people about Krishna. They're living their lives in such a way that even though that they have all these things, they're not attached to all these things. And we can see another billionaire who is using all of his money, you know, buying cars and airplanes and, you know, um, opulent things and just using his money for his own benefits. A lot of times billionaires will create their own... um, charity and then donate to their own charity because it just it's another way of them evading taxes and then they get to donate money and think of themselves as altruists but really it's just another way of you know inflating their own sense of self-worth so the mindset is really what the difference is and this is what we're you know Krishna is saying always think of me become my devotee so it doesn't matter what situation you're in, whether you're in a crocodile hole or a billion-dollar mansion, you're always thinking of Krishna and doing for him. You know, you may think, I'm blessed to be living in this house because Krishna has allowed me to live in this house. Um, how can I repay Krishna? You know, what can I do for him? Versus, wow, look at what I've achieved. Uh, you know, I got this by on my own back. Like, I did the work to get here. I'm not going to just give this money away. I'm not going to just give my space away. There's a 
a difference in mindset there. Does that answer your question? All right. Well, then I'll end here. Darantra Srimad Bhagavatam ki.